Well, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to uh, Paul's letter to Ephesians and chapter 4, we're going to read that together or part of it at least and uh, pray and then dive into it together this morning. So Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 through to verse 24. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but if you've got a Bible or a phone, it'd be great to have it open and keep it open as we work through the passage together. Ephesians 4 verse 17. Paul writes, Now this I testify, or sorry, this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our, uh, the opportunity that we have here this morning to gather as we've heard around your word, because of your Son, in your very presence as your people. What a privilege. And now we come with your word open and your spirit in our hearts and we ask that you would take your word and speak into our lives. Lord, if we're here exploring who you are and what you're like, we pray that you by your spirit would make that clear to us if that's where we're at today. We ask, Lord, most of all, please speak to all of us by your word, for your glory and for our good. Amen. Well, this morning, as is obvious, we're going to continue in our series uh, that we've, we've been working through in Paul's letter to Ephesians, which we've called The Death of Division. We've taken a couple of weeks break, uh, but we're diving back in at Chapter 4, 17 to 24 this morning. Now, and we've called this series, just by way of reminder, The Death of Division for two reasons, really, as follows. Firstly, uh, we've called it The Death of Division because God, through Christ, has actually put to death the division that existed between Him and us. A division that was brought about by our sin and our rebellion against him. Sin and rebellion that separated us from him and made us guilty before him and so worthy of his just and righteous judgment. God, through Christ, as we've come to put our hope and trust in him, has removed all that and put it to death. So we are no longer divided from God, no longer separated from him, but reconciled to him and united to his son. 
Not only that, but as we put our trust in him and what he's done for us in Jesus, God actually puts to death the division that often exists between each other, between one another. That is, through Christ, our fractured humanity is redeemed and we are brought together around him and through him and in him. A little later on, we're going to come around the Lord's table, which is so symbolic of the way that God has brought us to himself through Christ, but also brought us to one another in Christ. And so there's this death of division between us as people. And by way of context, as we dive in again this morning, it's important for us to remember that the Apostle Paul literally spends half of Ephesians laying these things out for us. Chapters 1 to 3 doesn't say a single thing that we need to do until chapter 4. It's all about what God has done and right through until the end of chapter 3. But then Paul goes on to uh, begin to talk about what we need to do. But in chapters 1 to 3, he reminds us and, and outlines that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That he's predestined us in Christ to be adopted as his sons. That he has forgiven us through Christ. That he's redeemed us through Christ. That in all of this he's lavished, poured out his rich grace upon us through Jesus, not, not just a little bit of a kind of you know, stingy bit of grace, but an absolute avalanche of God's grace pouring out upon us through Jesus. In doing so, he's given us an inheritance that we will uh, receive one day. And in the meantime, he has sealed us for that inheritance as a guarantee by nothing less than his very own Holy Spirit. That's just the first 14 verses in a real quick helicopter trip. In fact, the first 14 verses is the longest sentence in the New Testament. It's basically one continual outburst of praise from Paul. It finishes with these words, to the praise of his glory. Why such praise? Well, because Paul's under no illusion about where we were without Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, what does he say? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humankind. Paul's under no illusions as to where we were without Jesus. Spiritually dead, enslaved, under the power of Satan himself, driven and controlled by our own desires and lusts. Children of wrath. But God, perhaps the two of the most powerful words in the book of Ephesians, but God, 
Two words that changes everything. God intervened. That's where we were, but God intervened. What did he do? Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were there, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ and through Christ and in Christ. He made us alive. If you're a Christian, you're spiritually alive. You were dead, but now you're alive, alive to God. How good is that? And all by grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You weren't particularly attractive to God to do it. You were actually unresponsive to him and even hostile to him. But he intervened, saw us in our sin and shame and death, and he lifted us. No wonder Paul says, by grace you have been saved. By the undeserved favour of God you have been saved. No wonder verse 3 to 14 is just this one long sentence of unending praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is from him. Don't you want to bless God when you think about where you were and his intervention in your life and where you are now? Sure, still a work in progress, still a long way to go, but you're alive in Christ. It really is the ultimate before and after story, isn't it? (laughs) You know, we know what they are. We see them all the time. There's renovation rescue, there's fixer-upper, you know. GBC, do you want to see your fixer-upper <laughs> that God has done? Here it is. The block just goes on and on. We're all, it's happening all the time, all these before and after stories. AGT, they're all about before and after stories, aren't they? Or at least trying to find one or create one. Nothing comes close to the before and after story that Jesus does in our lives. You and me, if we've come to know him, if we've trusted him. How does Paul describe it again in chapter, chapter 2? Perhaps the most famous verses in, or well-known verses in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice especially verse 10. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared before hand that we should walk in them we are God's before and after project friends in Christ and it's nothing short of breathtaking I wonder this morning are you are we 
Have you come and put your hope and trust in Jesus that he might make you new? That he might change you in ways that you can't? That he might deal with things deep down inside of you that you wish were not there? That he might renew your humanity? That he might get rid of the division that there is between you and him because of your sin and mine? that he might redeem you. If you're a Christian, do you realise where you were before God intervened? We're so good at talking this down, aren't we? You know, oh yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't great. No, you were dead. <laughs> you were gone for all money. There's no hope. I'm sure most of you have been to a funeral, right? I mean, if it's a Christian funeral, there's hope because you're, preach, you're talking about Jesus' resurrection. But if it's just a corpse, there's no hope. That's the picture. That's where we were. But God intervened. Well, that brings us to chapter 4, where Paul starts to get super practical, doesn't he? Practical in terms of our lives and what they're to look like if we are God's workmanship. Because the implication of we are God's workmanship is he hasn't finished, that he's started a work and that he's continuing to work and that that's going to work itself out in our lives. So what does it look like? Well, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, there's two really important ideas here. Firstly, there's the, the idea of calling. And Paul's referring to all that God has done for you and me and Jesus is a calling to something. It's, it's, it's another way of describing our salvation, a calling from death to life, from darkness to light. And in doing so, it's a call to a whole new way of living, which is where we come to the idea of walk, which is Paul's way of speaking about our lives and not just our lives, but where they're going, <laughs> what the direction of them is, what the trajectory of them is, spiritually, where they're going, morally, where are they going? Ethically, where are they going? Existentially, where are they going? Big word, I know, but it just, it's just a, uh, like a fleshing out of the word exist. Purpose. Where is my life's purpose going? What am I focused on? What am I deciding about? What am I giving myself to? I urge you, Paul says, to walk in a manner worthy of this. So the point that Paul is making is that the one is to be shaped by the other. The walk is to be shaped by the calling. All that God has done for us in Christ is to shape all that we do in our lives. And notice this is an urging here from Paul. I urge you, he says, to live a life consistent with what God has done for you. 
to live a life, friends, that doesn't deny the power of God in Christ. Because you're just still going the same direction you used to go. But a life that confirms the power of God. Because now you're living in a way, in a direction that you would never have gone. And the only explanation for it is the gospel and its power. So in chapter 4 we see we've seen two key things already that we're called to over these last few weeks. And they're really obvious. The first one uh, Tim brought to us and it's this, that we are called to unity because we are one in Christ. That in the gospel God calls us to himself and to one another and to unity in Christ. You remember how he said it? We're to live with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one faith, just as you were called to one hope, one that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We're called to unity because we are one in Christ. Then we saw for a couple of weeks that we're called to ministry because we are gifted by Christ. When God saves us, the risen Jesus gives gifts to his people. Some particular gifts among his people that bring the word of God to his people so that they might be equipped for the ministry of the saints. For the ministry that they have to do. That we all have to do. God in the gospel calls us to himself, to one another in unity and to serving together. To ministry. Because he's, we are gifted by Christ. And then this morning, you'll be glad to know it's a one point sermon. We're called to holiness because we have new life in Christ. We're called to holiness because we have new life in Christ. Again, in verse 17, Paul insists that as Christians, we must no longer walk like we used to. In their case, he says, you, I insist that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do, as, it, as the unbelieving people do, as the pagans do. How did they walk? How did they used to participate, if you like, in the culture of the day? What was that culture? Well, it was Ephesus. And Ephesus was a pretty interesting culture. A pagan city full of pagan, unbelieving, idolatrous culture. It was a rich and prosperous city, perhaps one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire at the time. And along with that, of course, came all the trappings of indulgence and decadence and self-satisfying delights of all shapes and sizes. But more so, it was the city of one of the, great, one of the seven wonders of the world, the great temple of Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. And with that... This massive temple that towered over the city that you could see on the landscape for miles came all the spirituality 
and the idol worship and the sexual immorality associated and involved in all in the temple. This is what God, through the good news of the gospel, saved them out of. A life of pagan practices and pagan worship that Paul describes in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is the life, the walk that they had, if you like. And Paul says, I insist that you no longer walk like that. Why? Well, verse 20. Verse 20 tells us, Paul says, but you, sorry, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught him, him in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deep deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What's Paul saying? He's saying you've come to know Jesus personally as your king and as your rescuer. And this radically changes things. He says they learned Christ. Notice he didn't say they learned about Christ. He says you learned Christ, pointing to the relationship they now have with him. They didn't just know about him, they knew him. Paul says, assuming that you, you know, you, you kind of got there that you were taught that you heard about him and that you were taught in him maybe some of you is, is kind of i think allowing for some who might not yet be christian but by and large he's saying you learned christ you know him now he has saved you out of darkness into his marvelous light and so verse 22 put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed, or to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice the two words there, two key words to understand this. To be renewed, verse 23, and created after the likeness of God, verse 24. Both those words are in a tense that... Uh, Picture that happening to you and for you. We don't renew ourselves. We don't recreate ourselves. God does that. And Paul is saying, put off your old self and put on your new self, having your mind renewed by God. And this new self that God is recreating, the redeemed you. He might, like, he might want to say the best version of you, right? Not yet, but it started. Put, it, put off the old. That's not, that's not where you're at now. That's not who you are anymore. 
Jesus has saved you and is renewing you and recreating you in his likeness. In true righteousness and holiness. Not some kind of external kind of behavior management, you know, white knuckle, grit your teeth, do your best type model. No, no, this is true righteousness and holiness that God is bringing about as he changes you and renews you and makes you like himself. Put, live that out. That's what's happening in your life through the gospel. So live it out. This is what God is doing in you and in me if we've put our trust in Jesus and we're to welcome it and live it out in the day-to-day. This is part of the calling to a life that's worthy of the gospel. We are called to holiness because we have new life in Christ. Now, I've used this illustration before, but people keep having them, so I'm going to use it again. And it's the illustration of what happens when new babies arrive in any family. They have all these hopes and dreams for them and some fears as well. Uh, one of them, I think, is going to the, the, what do they call them, the child health nurse. And they get that book out and they fill in that thing called the percentile. And you're just like, oh, where are they going to be on the percentile? Because if they're too low, they're either failing to thrive or close to failing to thrive and that is not what you want to hear. And so... You do everything you can to make sure they get what they need and they thrive. Paul is urging us not to fail to thrive when God has made us alive in Christ. We have in him everything we need to walk in holiness. Not perfection, but true righteousness and holiness that God, by his powerful spirit and his word, and as we cooperate with him, is bringing about. We can actually make progress in fighting off sin in our lives. It's actually possible now. And more than that, we can pursue the things that, God, that, that, are, that are like God the way he is, his character, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. There's a whole bunch of his attributes that we don't even go near and we never will because that's God and we're us, right? But we're to pursue holiness because we have new life in Christ. Now, there's two things about this that are so encouraging. Well, one that's encouraging and one that's challenging. The one thing that's encouraging is that we hear here very clearly that Christian life is not just about fulfilling a whole bunch of rules and regulations and making sure we stick to this whole kind of list of things that we need to do and to make sure that we don't do those sorts of things. I mean, those things are there, but that's not, what, that's not the heart of it, is it? The heart of it is God has made you alive in Christ. 
And now you live that out in obedience to Jesus and love for God in a way that you never, ever would have dreamt of being able to do. And as you do that, there will be things that you don't do and there'll be lots of things that you do do. But it's not just a moral wrestle. It's actually a powerful relationship with the living Christ as we're united to him. Now, so that's the encouraging thing. The challenging thing is this. Grace is amazing. But it clearly doesn't mean because God is gracious, we just live however we like. You know, God, God, God's gracious, right? He forgives. It's, it's not about works. It's about grace. So I, I just do whatever I like and God's gracious. Well, that is, that's to misunderstand the gospel altogether. Because God's grace not only saves you, it actually begins to bring about a change in you. And so if there's no change, again, not perfection, but direction, if your walk hasn't been altered, and yet maybe you think you're a Christian, if there's no change in your walk at all, then maybe something was missing in your understanding of becoming a Christian or in your experience of that and you need to revisit that. Come back to the gospel and think, what did I miss? Because surely there should be some change. Grace is not a license for sin. <laughs> Grace that saves also changes. So it's comforting on the one hand and encouraging on the one hand and challenging on the other. See, God actually intends to fully redeem you and me and make us ultimately like his son, Jesus. That's the direction that he's taking us in Christ. And by his grace and with his power, we're now able to turn away from sin and turn to Christ and pursue his will, strengthened by him and empowered by him. I wonder, are you responding today to God's call on your life to holiness? This is probably a good indicator. When was the last time you repented of something? When was the last time that you not only confessed your sins, but you, pres not, you, know, so you, uh, so you, but you repented of your sins? Sometimes confession of sin can be, I just want to feel better. I feel bad. I did something wrong. I, want to, I feel bad about it. I want, to, I, want, I want to confess so I can feel better. No, but God's calling us to turn from sin as well, which is repentance. When was the last time you repented? When was the last time you, you in light of what God's word has said, as perhaps in a gathering like this or as you've read it yourself, with the help and power of the Spirit, you've gone, hang on a minute, I need to... I need I need to do something different here. This, this direction is not, not pleasing to God. That's a good indicator. Are you responding to God's call on your life to holiness? When was the last time you bit your tongue and didn't say maybe what you thought <laughs> about somebody? 
or to somebody? When was the last time you chose not to pursue that particular pleasure because you want to use whatever you were going to use for that particular pleasure to support, I don't know, some other gospel kind of work? When when was the last time you made that kind of a decision? God calls you and me to holiness because we have new life in Christ. So I wonder, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? We know a little bit about the Ephesus culture from this morning. What is it about our culture, do you think, that Paul would say, I urge you, I insist that you no longer walk in the way you used to walk. What is it about Perth, Western Australia culture? that we might need to leave behind or at least keep in check? What does our culture pursue or desire that is corrupting and deceitful and leads us away from God? What is that part of your former life or of my former life that I need to put off? And what aspect of the new life I have in Christ do I need to put on what do i need to put off is it the constant pursuit of pleasure is it the never-ending desire for comfort is this is it the sexual sexualization of everything and everyone is it the attitude that i might have that says that says no one can tell me what to do not even god is it the, is it the desire to be served by others and a reluctance to not serve? Is it the constant accumulation of things coupled with the absence of generosity and giving? What is that part of our former way of life that we need to put off this morning even? In what way do we need to start living out the new life we have in Christ more verse 17 let's finish with this again now this i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as the gentiles do in the futility of their minds and again chapter 4 verse 1 paul says to the ephesians and to us i urge you i urge you as a prisoner of the lord to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called, called to unity, called to ministry, and called to purity or holiness. Will you, by walking in a manner worthy of that call, respond this morning to the gospel again? Let me pray for us. We're going to sing and then we're going to come around the Lord's table together. Father, we, um, yeah, we want to just come this morning and acknowledge that we are, we're, we're quick to play down the seriousness of our state without you, to, to, to minimise it, not to uh, see it uh, as, as clear as it is because it's confronting. And so often we fail to see and wonder at the 
beauty of your intervention for us in Jesus. Father, we, we also sometimes think uh, small thoughts about your salvation of us. We, we might focus in on one bit, maybe the forgiveness of our sins and the, the removal of our guilt, which is awesome and amazing and such a, such a blessing. But Lord, it's so multifaceted as we've seen this morning. Redemption, forgiveness, adoption, inheritance, and a call to walk in newness of life. Right up until the day we stand before you, Lord Jesus. As we'll see later on in Ephesians. Presented as a spotless bride. Perfect, without wrinkle or blemish. Holy. Oh my goodness. What a day that's going to be. Lord, in the meantime, will you help us by your spirit to continually respond to the call that you have placed on our lives in Jesus. May it be daily for your glory and for our good. Amen.